0: Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Sydney Lee, my freshman daughter Baylor, and Don VandenBoard, happy birthday to you. I had to do that first folks, otherwise I might have forgotten halfway through the show, but Sydney, we love you down in Waco, and Don, we love you down in St. Augustine Beach, Florida. So now that we got that out of the way, I hope Nikki gave you a big wet kiss this morning for your birthday, Don. And now we'll go to the show. John Corazine is going to shutter his second hedge fund due to poor performance. Well, I guess that's better than outright stealing and theft on his first uh, 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 commodities firm or they just raided people's accounts. Now, is somebody reading my mail? I just saw this article saying, Will inflation repeat that 70s show? And it's talking about uh, that's what the author's saying, but bond prices are screaming yes. He's saying no. He's saying no, it's not going to be a repeat. But that's not what bond prices are, are saying. And along those say, same lines, is U.S. debt unsustainable? With this ticking time clock and the and the and the debt ceiling being hit, and people saying we're thirty three trillion dollars in debt, and we're going to hit the point of no return soon or and the other side says, modern monetary theory, you can print as much as you want, and it won't matter. it won't cause inflation like last year when we did it, it'll be different this time. Who knows, but we're going to talk about those things because that's going to have a major major effect on which asset allocations you should have, the type of assets you should have. Because if we go into a, def- a recession and deflation and they raise interest rates high enough to kill off growth and kill inflation, but also kill jobs, you want probably bonds and you don't want gold and you don't want equity. However, I'm sorry, if they, if they, but if they do create a soft landing and, and it's not too tight, to where inflation goes down but it doesn't kill the economy that's the goldilocks are looking for but if inflation keeps going up and rising now you're going to have to have gold and precious metals and commodities so recession deflation depression it's bonds normally sometimes even gold yeah it might surprise you however if it's inflation it's precious metals and commodity if it's even keel, good expanding economy, then it's going to be stocks and bonds. So we're going to talk about that, and 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 um, most important, what effects does a strong dollar, not a weak dollar, because right now we're having a strong dollar, have on these markets? We'll go to Don on that, and Mike is Mike and I are going to talk about the default uh, print mechanically, the U.S. dollar and treasury bonds and what that means. So before I do that, let me give you a couple of facts. By the way, all of these articles are on our show notes, so you can go read these show notes. Some of them are are, are pretty heady stuff. But uh, Luke Groman, who has this advisory for he basically is talking about the bond market meltdown, okay? And he's talking about debt, you know, we haven't had this much debt to GDP since World War II, when we were fighting war. Not ever since quote peacetime. Now, whether Ukraine's peacetime or not, doesn't matter. But, but if we if we uh, uh, we've not had this much debt since World War II, and the government spending was 25 percent of GDP approximately a year ago. And now it's almost 30% of GDP. So of our total gross domestic product, 30% is our government spending. That's up 15%. Our deficits, our interest expense every year is now 8.5% of GDP. Okay? Now, both of those only happened during a recession before. So either we are in a recession or we're not, and we're doing this as a special... Special for some reason. But now, if government GDP is up 15%, that means that GDP contributed 4.5% to GDP. Our government spending, our government production, it's really taxpayer money funding it, but production contributed to four and a half, caused uh, GDP to rise 4.5%. Well, if the reported GDP is 2.1, the last reported GDP, that means the private sector is either flat or only up 1%. So it's not as good as they're trying to portray, and the government is carrying most of the load. Now, take this a step further. Tax receipts are now down 20% from a year ago, so things are getting tougher. And at these five percent new rates because the treasuries have to roll over the interest expense to five percent so on 33 trillion dollars and it won't happen all at once that's going to be 1.65 trillion of interest expense each year so the government spending can be a real problem now why do i say this well My former partner who passed away in 2016, his name was Dan Kofal, he came up with what's called the Kofal curve. You heard of the Laffer curve? Well, the Kofal curve. And he said, a government job is not equal to a private sector job. Why is that? Because it takes eight or so, maybe 10 private sector jobs, depending on how well they pay and how much money they're making, but roughly eight private sector jobs to pay the taxes to pay one public sector job. So you want to talk about that crowding out effect that you've talked about as you as you uh, have more and more government workers, it really sucks a life force out of the private sector. so that is a problem now so what Luke is saying is the long term treasuries are not nearly as deep as liquid as they once were, and actually for the first time, gold volatility has been less. Than Treasury bond volatility during this interest rate hike, that is not normal. Now he said, if he's correct, he said gold and precious metals are going to be the place to be. Now what I'm saying is, if rates do come, if they peak and and they they start having the effect, and the Fed start stops taking interest rates, take their Foot off the gas and rates start to come down along with inflation. Inflation's already been coming down some. Then bonds and stocks and even gold, possibly, but bonds and stocks are going to be the way to go. So this is one reason we don't like passive pie chart investing because if you need one pie chart for one scenario, one pie chart asset allocation for another, and what if it doesn't play out? Okay. The other thing that you have to remember that's so important. So important is the fact that um, the U.S. dollar is relative to all other currencies. So, yes, our GDP is well above 100% uh, of GDP. Our government debt is well over 100% of debt to GDP. But the EU, the European Union, they're much worse. China is much worse now. They hide their debt at the 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 local and providence level, not at the federal level, not the national level. So they hide it better. But they and Japan's the worst of all of them. Put a fork in them, they're done. So it, you always got to look at it on a relative basis. So with that kind of backdrop, are we is the Fed creating that perfect Goldie Knox soft landing scenario, or are we hitting a point of no return? And, and we've we got to cut spending soon, or we're going to get in a debt cycle, a spiral. What is that? But more importantly, what are the correlations between these asset classes? Because bonds, strong dollar, bad for stocks, bad for treasury bonds, normally. Well, it's good for treasury bonds long term, but it puts pressure on them in the short term. And it's also bad for gold. So with that backdrop, I want to bring Mike in. And Mike, why don't you explain just a little bit about, you know, you wanted to talk a little bit about the mechanics of uh, the U.S. dollar treasury bonds and kind of the mechanics of how that works.
2: Absolutely. And I think uh, a discussion style format would be great. So too long explaining things without. yeah having some dialogue and and um, yeah different thoughts but um basically just going back to um, about the the liquidity and demand for for the long end of the curve these these longer dated treasuries, I think a lot of that is is overblown. I mean at the moment we are seeing a lot of issuance, so there is a lot of supply coming onto the market but in terms of demand for the these longer dated bonds, something I was thinking about is is the largest generation in America currently is the generation um, that's retiring between the years 2010 to 2030. And that's the the baby boomer generation. And, and between those years, they're, that, that is the largest generation in America in terms of population. And they're the ones that are retiring. So from 2010 until, until basically last year, all these retirees were pushed along the, the risk curve to, to risk your assets to actually generate some income and get a yield because there were no other options. I'm sure you've heard of something called TINA, which is there is no alternative. That's why equities were performing so well and had so much money flowing into the, the equity market because there was no alternative to equities. You couldn't park your money in these longer-dated tre- treasuries and earn income. But now that there is an alternative, and as I said, this is the largest generation in America, and on top of being the largest, also the wealthiest generation America's ever seen, there there is a lot of tension for those those treasuries uh, from, from this generation. So that is something to consider. And I don't know the exact supply-demand dynamics um, in terms of the exact numbers of, of how much demand versus supply from, regulations I've seen there there will demand to absorb supply of treasuries and also to consider is the central bank they talk about QT and balance sheet runoff and getting rid of these these uh longer dated bonds they are, that is accurate they are letting a lot of them run off but they're they're only letting about 60% of the, the bonds that are maturing to run off they're still buying purchasing actively in the market another 40% and then foreign central banks as well increasing their holdings as their bonds mature they are they, they have a, a a a net uh neutral position where they're not increasing their holdings but as those bonds mature they are purchasing the the same amount so there is demand um and and yeah powell was asked about this in the conference what's leading to uh the, these higher longer term rates is it that inflation expectations are unanchored? And he said no. There, there's a lot of other factors. He he does not believe that it's inflation at all, which I completely agree with. It's more you've got term premiums. There's also a lot of momentum, and and we can't discount the 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 momentum. And it's when when things are dropping, when yields are increasing, the the sort of knee jerk reaction is to have them increasing, and momentum continues until there's there's a an opposite. Um, equal and opposite force in, in the opposite direction. yeah in the opposite direction. So yields can continue rising for a while, but eventually uh they they will stop and and reverse. Um so, so something to keep in mind. But I think a good place to start the discussion would be talking uh about interest rates and then relating it to the dollar because at the end of the day, everything in the macro economy starts from interest rates that is the primary driver of all macroeconomic activities so the cost of money
0: the cost I of money
2: the the cost of money exactly so the the fed's been front and center for a while now i'm sure everyone if they didn't know what the fed was 2 years ago they 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 know uh all of the voting members on the fomc and then they're best friends with uh they they talk to their best friends about Jerome Powell. so Everyone's well aware of the Fed, what they've been doing. But recently on the meeting on September 20th, where the market, this correction really started to accelerate, was that there was something called the summary of economic projections. And what that is, is where all of the FOMC voting members, they release their their statements and their views of future monetary policy, which monetary policy means how they're going to be impacting interest rates. Because of what they see in the economy, whether it's inflation, uh, GDP growth, whatever the factors are, they they determine the future rate or the future trajectory of, of interest rate policy. So what, what appeared in this summary of economic projections and something called the dot plot is that in 2024, the market was pricing in and expecting that interest rates would be cut by 100 basis points. Which when people talk about basis points, what that means is 100 basis points is equal to 1%. 50 basis points is half a percent. They just say basis points instead of a percent, but it, it's, it's the same thing. So 100 basis points equals 1%. Now, this new dot plot showed that in 2024, the projections are actually for a decrease of 50 basis points. And then going into 2025, maintaining that, that, um, that higher level of interest rate. And the problem with that projection as well is that Powell also said that he wants to see real rates as high as 250 basis points. And what real rates mean is you've got nominal rates and then you've got real rates. So nominal rates are the, the interest rate that is set by the Federal Reserve. The real rate is that nominal rate once you subtract in the, the inflation rate out of it. So you can have nominal rates that are equal to the inflation rate. And at that point, you have 0% real rates. And the reason why real rates being at elevated levels are so so detrimental to the economy is that at that point, when you have positive real rates, the cost of capital increases for absolutely everyone. Because you can think about the economy based on on. Uh, the the strongest companies, all along, along the biggest companies, and when you're in an inflationary environment, the strongest companies, due to their competitive advantages, their ability to either raise prices or lower costs, can kind of maintain their margins and increase revenues and earnings at a similar pace to inflation. So if the nominal if the nominal rate is equal to the inflation rate, their cost of capital is essentially even because They're they're not that affected by it. But when you have positive real rates, that means even even though they can raise their prices at the rate of inflation, maybe slightly higher than inflation for some companies, their cost of capital is still increasing more than their earnings. And that will affect the weaker companies first, which is why you're starting to see bankruptcies because they don't have the earnings power or the the market position to, to counteract that and withstand that. And then the stronger companies survive, but eventually you get to a, you get to a situation where a company that seemed really, really strong out of nowhere, goes bankrupt. And then it's more of a, okay, maybe it's not, um, maybe there's a disease that's now infected the, the entire economy. And that's when you see the Fed step in once something breaks, that's what they call something breaking. It can be an event be a a company a a strong company going bank big bank whatever it is that shows that there's something that's really infected the economy The cure to that infection and that disease is the fed cutting so that's that's why they cut aggressively when when something breaks so now hang on hang on let let me let me hang
0: on let me jump in there real quick so but but okay. to be clear real rates need to be a little bit above the inflation rate otherwise lenders don't want to lend money because they've got an, a guaranteed loss if i'm going to lend money at 5% inflation's 8 i got a 3% loss that's what the real rate is that's what mike's talking about so if the inflation rate is 4 i've got to charge 6 so i can make 2% otherwise i'm really not making a real rate so lending will get curtailed as interest rates rise too much because uh, lenders have to make a little profit. So they're going to raise rates when you have inflation and then it kills out some deals. So in a healthy economy where you don't have real, don't have a lot of inflation, you should have a slightly graduated uh, level where prime people, prime rates have a, a little bit higher rate than the inflation rate. And then subprime, and then the worst credit quality goes higher and higher. And that's a normal interest curve and interest rate curve. What the Fed has done here, when they raise short-term rates up so high, they actually cause, mis it sends wrong economic signals. Now municipalities can't raise money because they got to compete against the Fed. Now corporations have to pay a lot higher rates because they've got a Uh, pay higher than what the dividend stocks. they got to pay higher than the treasuries. And let's not forget, the Fed caused the inflation to begin with by printing the money and then not sucking it out once they opened the economy up. Inflation is only a monetary phenomenon. It's not supply and demand. But we're here. So from here, where do we go and how do we react? So Mike, with that, what do you do now? How do you, what... Kind of explain the interactions between the asset classes—the bonds, the dollar, gold, and oil—and kind of what, wh- how you would do it if you were the Fed now. What you would try to do?
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to to speak on. Uh,
0: uh, trust me, you are. Don't show I yourself. Don't don't sell Uh, yourself short. You're as smart as those guys. These guys caused the massive inflation to begin with. Don't kid yourself and don't let them misdirect you and tell you that they didn't cause it. The Fed was the cause of the inflation, period. Now we want the Fed to fix it. Well, okay.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the the Fed, yeah, the the Fed is is the root cause of of all, uh, for for the past few decades, uh, in in recent history, all macroeconomic cycles. there.
0: so so kind of now go into the intercorrelations between these but you don't have to tell you what you try to fix it with the fed but now kind of go over what what, what the intercorrelations between these assets the dollar gold oil and treasury bonds
2: Okay so starting with uh with uh, with with the dollar and interest rates I mean the correlation there is that uh, a primary driver of uh, foreign exchange rates are it's something called interest rate differentials. And what that means, sounds complicated, but all that means is the difference in the level of interest rates from one country to another. And, for example, the risk-free rate, what it's called risk-free, which is you're taking absolutely no risk, the baseline. It's used for all um, valuation. It's, you always use the the, the risk-free rate. That risk-free rate is is U.S. Treasuries. Now, what maturity you want to use depends on on what kind of valuation you're you're trying to accomplish. But the risk-free rate is U.S. Treasuries. Now, in terms of foreign exchange rates and, and those currencies, explain to me how it makes sense that the euro, which should be, if the risk-free rate is the U.S., all other interest rates along uh, uh, between nations should be higher than that risk-free rate. How can the eurozone have a lower interest rate than the U.S.? How can the 10-year treasury in Europe be yielding less than the dollar? And it can't, which is why you're seeing that euro weaken against the dollar, because money is just flowing into into the U.S. into that risk-free rate. And they don't want these, these uh, euro bonds, which is why, or not euro bonds, European bonds, because euro bonds is something different. But the, these European central bank bonds, when now rates are increasing rapidly in, in Europe. And, and Europe's already been in a recession for a little while, um, technically speaking. And as rates increase there, they can't handle it. So Europe's in a lot of trouble. The U.S., luckily, our economy has been strong and up until now we have been able to handle it but that can that can change uh very rapidly as well so in terms of uh the the main driver you going to say something Dan?
0: well i was gonna say the one good thing and i hate to say this i almost cringe saying this the one advantage to us having higher rates is you get foreign buyers of our bonds we finally start so As of 2014, central banks holding US treasuries actually had gone down quite a bit, and their purchases of gold had actually been increasing. But just this last year, they're starting to buy more treasuries again, like Mike said. Why? Because the yield's higher. So that does benefit because we're going to have to, if we're going to have another trillion dollar additional deficit over the one we already have. We're going to have to be able to sell these bonds. That's what this guy in this article was talking about, this feedback loop. As interest rates go up and our deficits grow and we have to issue more bonds, we've got to issue more bonds to pay off the interest. It's almost a little bit like a Ponzi scheme, but also that 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 stimulus, that bond buying and you reinvest would actually cause inflation. That's I don't quite agree with everything he was saying. But the good news Mike what I'm saying is you're actually creating a market for treasuries but it hurts everybody else the municipalities the corporate bonds the stocks that pay dividends uh european bonds it hurts everybody else everybody wants treasuries and nothing and, else um,
2: and yeah and and not just that I mean it, it the 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 so our our economy is uh, the the most important aspect of our economy are, are our banks and, and our financial system. That, that's our, the, the majority of our economy is based on, it, it's totally hyper-financialized. And right. the issue with these higher rates too, something you've got to think about and the reason why these regional banks are in the dumps and a lot of them, you've already seen banks go bankrupt and with higher rates, more and more will go bankrupt is is that the way that they make their money is they, they lend money and they lend on the long on the long end of the curve. So if they have all of these loans on their books at, let's say, 2% interest rates, all of these people that have these mortgages at 2%, if they're not refinancing, the banks still have it on them. And as interest rates rise, all of a sudden the value, the, the, the principal value of those loans, because they're yielding so much less now than the risk-free rate, the value of those loans goes way, way down. And all of a sudden, they're 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 almost they a lot less than what they were. So they have less collateral now. It, it, they they have to increase something called their loan loss provisions. The income the the margin they're getting from their from their loans now is less than their cost of actually borrowing money on the short end because they borrow on the short and they lend on the long. Now it's costing them more in in these CDs in deposits. It's just a a big, big problem for banks too. And you've already seen a few. Yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let
0: me, let me me explain that. You said that. I want to make sure the listener got that. Folks, right now, short-term rates are five, five and a half if you're buying a treasury bond. Everybody wants a treasury bond because it's five and a half percent. That's what the the banks are borrowing at short-term rates, not quite five and a half they get from the discount window of the Fed. But they're borrowing at three and a half, four, four and a half. Well, they've gotta pay to keep their depositors happy. They gotta pay them five, five and a half now. They've got an an automatic loss right now because of the inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve, forces the banks to have a loss on their income statement and all the bonds they have on their balance sheet went down in value. So now their balance sheet went down in value significantly while they have losses on their income statement. So the Fed either has to bail them out somehow or they're going to take losses and go bankrupt. That's the banking crisis we talked about about five or six months ago and it kind of got flitted away and papered over and now it's kind of re-emerging again. It's still back there in the lurking in the shadows but that's the structural that's one of the structural problems that I'm talking about the fed has created with the inverted yield curve All right, go ahead mike sorry
2: yeah and, and then to, just to to touch on the uh, the the asset correlations uh, so i mean it's not it's there's no direct correlation between between anything there are factors that that drive certain movements and and um uh, that are more important than others, but in terms of gold, gold is interesting because interest rates do affect gold. So, for example, when you have real positive interest rates at the levels which we have now, and we will have with what the Fed's saying they want to have in the future, it's it's extremely difficult for for gold to perform under those circumstances because gold does well in an inflationary environment and. When rates are so high and so much higher than the rate of inflation, it's it's more likely that you can get um, a deflationary situation or a disinflationary environment. So it's going to be really difficult for gold to perform in that. But where gold does perform as well, and you can see gold rising um, along with with interest rates, uh, like pretty much at this point, nothing can really stop gold, is when there's extreme, extreme fear of uh, of of just just the economy and and people want to bunker down and they don't want to hold any assets other than gold. Now that's usually in a later phase because before you get to that phase like in 2008 what we saw is when there is a financial crisis where you would expect gold to be doing well. Most gold, I mean you and me, you and I and our friends can buy a little gold, but that's not what's driving the price of gold. What it really is is central banks and and uh large institutions and these institutions and central banks when when really hits the fan they they don't sell what they want to sell they sell what they can sell and they they just get rid of all their assets because they need liquidity and one of the first assets they're just going to dump to get that liquidity is gold so in 2008 you saw a huge uh, crash along with the markets and the price of gold and then it took off so you want to time that well, um, there there's gold is interesting because it's, um, it has no cash flows. It doesn't really do anything. It's just supposedly a store of value, but, but, um, it, it doesn't always work that way.
0: And, hey, hey, hang on. And hey, let, let, me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me jump in there real quick. Just a couple things about gold because gold is traded on the futures markets as futures contracts. Uh, They have a carrying cost. It's based on the interest rate. And because gold doesn't have a dividend, if interest rates rise, the cost of the futures contract, the carrying cost of the gold futures contract actually goes up. So it makes it more expensive. That's one reason that paper gold, when interest rates rise, that it puts pressure on it. But Mike is spot on. And I'm glad he caught that and knew that, that when you get extreme fear both treasuries and gold can become highly correlated together and move together. So in 2008, the only two sectors that, that were did really well in 2008 were treasury bonds and gold. Even corporate investment grade bonds did poorly. Now, during the Great Depression, how did physical gold do? Well, we don't know. The government confiscated it. They confiscated it at 17 dollars half and then sold it in the open market at 35 dollars Announced a few years later. So they've almost doubled their money in a couple of years. The gold miners, the gold miners were the best performing sector in, during the 30s. Silver miners averaged 14 gold miners were way, way up there. Silver miners were up 14% in those, in that like 31, 32 to 38 period. So everybody in the textbooks in college, They teach you that deflation is bad for precious metals. When you get in a scary enough environment where people are scared, gold actually acts better as a fear trade than even an inflation trade. So sometimes, like Mike's right, when you get a little deflation or you get a little bit of uh, dropping rates or, or inflation numbers coming down, so you're getting a little bit of deflation, that's bad for gold. But if it really starts to collapse, don't be surprised if gold starts to rally. That's why price is always truth. All right, Mike, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Yeah, and, and just, uh, I guess, lastly, and then and then, um, if you have any questions or you you or Don, uh, some, something that I can explain a little better, I'm happy to go and tell. But, but um, basically, the, the last I want to say about these higher interest rates is that they're fine they're sustainable as long as as long as nominal gdp includes inflation. that that's not then you've got real gdp which you subtract inflation from but as long as nominal gdp remains strong a higher interest rate is sustainable because as gdp increases the government's revenues will increase because wages are going up they can raise more in taxes because tax taxes are are directly linked to growth so it's it's sustainable as long as the interest they're paying is less, the increase in interest is less than what they're earning, fine. But what happens when we go into a recession and all of a sudden GDP, GDP drops or goes negative? How is the Fed going to, or, or sorry, not the Fed, but the Treasury going to continue paying off the, these with revenues dropping and GDP dropping and... The, the answer is they're not, and, and as, soon as, as, as soon as the, the economy uh, whips out the proverbial gun, um, the, the Fed will cut aggressively, um, everyone will run to cover, you'll see uh, just money flowing into treasuries, it always happens, it always will happen, so um, th- those are my thoughts on that, but I mean, as long as, sure, I mean, maybe we get a soft landing, no landing, GDP, Stays strong, rises at at five percent a year for the next ten years, and um and interest rates stay high. But but that's uh
0: well, so so this very, guy's very low probability. Right. Thank, th- thank you, Mike. Thanks a lot. It was very good. And so this this article, this guy's premise is that the biggest portion of GDP, even though it's thirty percent of our economy, government spending, but it's the lion's share of all the GDP being produced. And so government spending is really masking how weak the private sector, where the tax revenues come from. And he's saying tax revenues are already down 20 percent and we're going to hit a brick wall pretty soon. That's what he it's a good article. He's got a lot of good points. There are a couple of things that I disagree, vehement, I disagree with him on. Um, but in any event, read the article. If you've got any questions, you can reach out and call me. And then there's a, another article that basically is talking about compound returns being a myth. And, and what he means by that is there are time periods, long time periods, 10, 15-year, 20-year time periods, where the market doesn't, it takes 20 years for it to come back. And because of people's time frame, they don't have that time to invest. He basically I always use an oak tree in an example. He uses some other thing. Long-term investing. Oh, he says, if you're uh, if you have eternal life or you're a vampire and you have 123 years to invest, you can do it. But if you don't, if you've only got 20 years to invest, the other thing they make a point is, you know, you got you got college funding, you got uh, you know starting a job, getting married. Most people start aggressively saving for retirement between 40 and 60-65. So they've got about a 20-year window. It's not the 40-year uh, uh, window that the advisors always talk about. It's not as long-term as they talk about. And then it shows this chart. I don't know if you can see that, but it's showing you these periods where there's a decade or two where the market doesn't go anywhere. And if you were buying holding stocks, you lost money or you, dead, you died broke. And your kids got, got it back when it came back. That's also a good article. I, I don't agree with all of it. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. But that's why I want to talk about the impacts in price in these different asset classes with the dollar, with the gold, with oil, and with interest rates. So, Don, let, we're going to go to the markets and and kind of, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you bring up a couple of charts showing how when you know the dollar gets much stronger bonds and you know i mean uh, uh, stocks and gold go under pressure and then all of a sudden when the dollar's kind of eased off it's just the opposite it's literally like a seesaw and there's a pretty good correlation
1: there sure is and if you're looking at the chart that i have up now it's uh the S&P 500 and we topped Uh, in late July at 46.07. So just drawing a general trend line from where we are, you can very clearly see that trend going down. Now let's take a look at charts of the US dollar. Anchor it to late July, and you can clearly see the dollar being uh, very strong. Let's go to a chart of the 30-year T bond. and you can clearly see rates going higher. Let's take a look at the 10 year. We've been talking about this. uh, We talk about it every night uh, at the beginning of our videos when we talk about inter-asset correlation and how the the dollar, uh, the VIX, uh, interest rates correspond to precious metals and the market. And um, it, it, These correlations, rising dollar, rising interest rates in this environment have been terrible for stocks. There's times when they move in sync. This is not one of those times. Uh, We're always on the lookout for when these correlations might switch. Very often you see uh, stocks going lower and bonds going lower. And that's what you pretty much saw uh, in 2022 during the bear market, there was nowhere to hide.
0: and Don, Don, but real quick. Real quick, when you so, folks, that chart he's got up right there now, that's bond yields. That's the interest rate. The bond prices work just the opposite of that. So if yields are going up, that means your bond price is doing that. Okay, I just want right. to be very clear. That's not bond prices. That's yields. It works like a seesaw.
1: Right. So let's bring up the broad bond index. And you can see the trend on this since April has been very clearly down, Uh, not always in sync with what's going on with the market. But uh, since the end of July, when the market started correcting, bonds have been correcting too in price, meaning yields going up. So this is another situation where, uh, just like we saw in 2022, let's go to, uh, here's a chart of all the last year. This is what bond prices did in 2022. Totally dumping. Uh, Would the S&P 500 do during that time? Well, that was the, the inflationary bear market, and the trend was down there also. So, And there was a case of why everybody started talking about, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? Because the traditional asset uh, pie chart advisors say bonds are a terrific hedge against stocks. One goes up while the other goes down, and that's just not always the case, and it certainly wasn't the case. Uh, during the 2022 bear, and it hasn't been the case since late July either.
0: Actually, 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 stocks and bonds are more positively correlated than negatively correlated. People don't know that they actually move more in tandem than they move inversely over the long term.
1: Yeah, and when and and during a times of crisis, I think Mike uh, mentioned this quote too. It's not you know what you want to sell; it's what you have to sell, uh, and and force selling. Uh, just piles on and uh, all correlations go to one during uh, crisis times like that. But what we've been talking about more shorter term, uh, the market has been in a correction on the uh, the videos and that correction started right here with Jerome Powell and the FOMC last Wednesday coming out with a much more hawkish stance than was expected. Uh, We sold off hard uh, last Wednesday, the next day we gapped down and closed at the lows. The day after that, we closed at the lows. We had a short-term bounce. Then we had another gap down and close at the lows. <clears throat> and then finally uh, on Wednesday, it looked like we tried to put in from a very old level, some sort of a bottom. Uh, we followed through with some strength yesterday and then we gassed morning on uh, PCE inflation data that was perceived as positive. Uh, well, it was perceived as something that would not make the Fed continue to hike rates. The the rates, the odds now for uh, a rate hike either in November or December are uh, around 20 to 25%. Uh, but all we did in this rally is we ran into the declining ultra short-term moving average. That's the purple line. And we reversed right there. Basically, where we opened on the day has been the high of the day so far. And it's been uh, a jagged chop. Um, of lower highs and lower lows that's a definition of a downtrend uh, and that's what we've been doing today so a gap up on perceived positive inflation data markets are still holding in there we may finish strong but as for right now we ran into this declining uh on the s p this declining ultra short-term moving average that's the eight-day moving average but i talked about in the videos last night this three uh bar combination is called a morning star, and it very often uh, is a signal that puts in a at least a short-term bottom. We saw a very similar three-bar combination back in uh, mid-August that put in a short-term bottom, and we rallied for a couple of weeks. So, uh, from indicator, it just means that you're just a bit too oversold. This comes at the bottom of a down, happened back in late July to mid-August, the same way it has now during uh mid to late september and it's just it, it just means that you can draw a line in the sand and if you break that sand things are worse than uh advertised and it's something that will cause us to take additional defensive action because it was a level going back to uh, the beginning of june what i had marked here where we had a breakout above this congestion level and went on to a very nice uh, eight week rally where we topped
0: and the, July, and, and, that, and, the, yeah, and the dollar was weakening yeah. and the
1: dollar was weakening. Yeah. And we've given back all those gains now. So this is a
0: and the dollar has strengthened spot.
1: and the dollar has strengthened. And that's a, you know, a, it's a logical place for us to bounce. But the dollar and rates are going to have a lot to say about this because we've been at their mercy there. You can see again the trend strong dollar. Um, did we put in a high two days ago? Well, that corresponds with the low in the market. Uh, and that's what we expect to see because these, conver- these uh, correlations have been a complete 180 uh, degree inverse correlation as of late. Uh, but the, the stocks definitely need to, need to see to go higher. We need to see some weakness in the dollar and some weakness in uh, interest. You can see how strong those have been lately. And again, they had that uh, negative reversal yesterday. Uh, gap down at the open. But they've been showing strength throughout the day, and as they show strength throughout the day, back to the five-minute chart on the S&P, stocks have been weakening during the day. So the, the inverse correlations are there, and it seems like we're more at the mercy of what's going on with rates and the dollar than we are on what any valuation that's put on individual stocks uh, has to say. And as you know, when the when the market wins are uh, when the face is in the wind of the market the wind is in the face of the market, Uh, that is 75% of stocks are gonna follow that overall direction of the market. One pocket where there has been a lot of strength lately is energy and oils, and uh, they're pulling back today. Uh, They actually undercut and reclaim the 21 day moving average, but just a little reversion to the mean uh, in oil stocks. Uranium has been very strong too. Uh, That pulled back a little bit uh, this morning as well. Uh, So a little bit of rotation going on with this uh, inflation data that came out this morning. But as for now, uh, not going to say that there's been a change in character other than a short-term oversold bounce is what we're seeing right now in the market.
0: But those two days, yesterday and today, the dollar weakened into just a couple of days. So that correlation right. is there. And by the way, kudos to to uh, Michael Ramos, because he he did a fundamental thing about the supply and demand and the bullishness of both uranium and LNG about three months ago on the show. And just recently, both LNG and natural gas have been confirmed in price and they're doing very well. So. All right. Well, thanks, Don. Now. I do have the mailbag. I I want to do the mailbag because I we didn't we had it limited last week because we're in our new digs. And uh, this is from Tuesday, September 26th. This is from MD subject. Hi, Don. This is about Rum R-U-M. Reason for the big drop recently is because a one-year window opened for IPO buyers to sell. I think the selling is over. The CEO of the company said he's not selling and any shares. His, he's not selling any shares and he has a lot of them. Don, Mr. Politically Correct, you might like it, but as the market, but the market currently hates it. We don't buy junk stocks for clients. So I said, me, MD, anything we invest in must be confirmed by price. Otherwise, it is just what people think might happen, not what is currently happening. It currently happening in real time. It is a different approach than forecasting in the future. We are different. Revere is a different animal. <coughs> we measure what is happening while it's happening and make adjustments accordingly. Cheers and hope you're well. Thanks, Dan. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, this is another one. Um, uh, you don't want to mention anything about rum, do you, Don? R U M? Rumble. Uh,
1: I just drew. I just drew the downtrend line that it's in. And you know, when we talk about junk stock, I mean, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but uh, there's things that we just have to stay away from from a liquidity standpoint, first of all. I mean, this could have the best chart in the world, but it trades 1.6 million shares and it's a $5 stock. Uh, Just O'Neill rules, first of all, say to avoid inexpensive stocks, they're there for a reason. And this just doesn't have enough liquidity for us to get into Uh, running 120 million dollars the way we do
0: well not only that illiquid stocks can be manipulated they can be manipulated badly so anyway
1: yeah and and i mean just we don't catch falling knives either so uh you know the ceo might say i'm not selling will that put in a bottom maybe it will and i wish any rumble holders the best of luck but this just isn't something that uh, falls into the category that we would be buying for our clients for several reasons.
0: Then I got another uh, listener, Dr. MS, on 926. Dan, on IBD Live, the GOAT, David Ryan, he's a big IBD uh, manager, uh, talked about his son, Sean, up 75% in the investment contest, was, was in, in the top 10 with his investment real estate inverse DRV. I think it was DRV. That's, I think that's one reason he sent it to me because I've been talking about DRV. Although DRV the last couple of days has been under pressure, but it was doing great when the dollar was strengthening, the market was going down. All right, me, saw that. Big trades for big bucks in those traders contest. But you have to be right on a few positions you take. And Sean was right. Kudos to Sean. He was right. In those trading contests, they're only going to take two or three positions and bet big. So you got to have about three or four positions, and you got to really get them right to win those contests. So it's not anything a retail investor or an investor for retirement is going to do anyway. But kudos to Sean. 928, uh, JS. Is, now, this is a question I think he was doing it to Don. He didn't clarify. Is this sell-off over, and is it, is it time to re-engage in the markets? Me. I will let Don field that on the show, but to, suffice it to say, we are always engaged with and tracking the markets. It's just our level of exposure. We are continuously adjusting depending on market risk. So, Don, do you want to add anything onto that? I think I kind of because we kind of described it the way you manage how we were doing things.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw. Uh, I drew a box here, and the way we manage things, we've got a, a somewhat passive uh, portion of the portfolio. Uh, And then a very active portion of the portfolio, the passive part of the portfolio mostly stays invested as long as we're above the 200 day moving average, because that's where all uh, all bear markets occur below the 200 day moving average, usually from the top until you break the 200 day moving average is about the pullback starts at about 12%. By the time you break, it's closer to about 9%. But that is just the room that we're willing to give the market, the S and P five hundred. So we, for the most part, stay engaged in uh, long S and P five hundred ETFs while the market is above the two hundred day. But that's thirty
0: percent exposure. What is that?
1: It's it's sixty percent total to the S and P five hundred using SSO, which is uh, a two times leveraged ETF. So we take thirty percent of the portfolio. Uh, times two equals sixty percent of the s and p five hundred, and then at that same time it the the difference with is is that we can take that thirty percent difference and invest it in t bills and get uh, right now about a five and a half percent return so uh,
0: well, hang on, hang on a second though I want to clarify this so but that sixty percent you will start trimming a little of that off if you break the hundred and the hundred and fifty is that right
1: we uh if that also corresponds, not mechanically, because if you are extremely oversold when you break there, the odds are in your favor that you're a gonna bounce. get a bounce. And that's yeah. what we've seen over the last couple of days. So if we're gonna reduce exposure, it would be on a bounce. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the side of the portfolio that really creates the alpha when you're in a bull market is this right side, which is which is growth stocks in the leading sectors when the market is in a strong bull market for growth stocks and we're not right now with the strong dollar and and, uh, yields going higher. Uh, But this is the part of the portfolio that's been in cash. And basically, we own two positions. If we're in position, something that's going to zig when the market is zagging, in this case, energy has been the only sector that held up well during this most recent pullback. We own NRGU and uranium has been uh, acting very well. We own a small position in a leading uranium stock. But um, so... Is it time to re-engage? Well, we we don't have to chase when we take this exposure. Uh, yes, we gave up uh, some client funds when we were pulling back. And then we know from experience when we're oversold, as long as we're not below this key level, we're gonna get harsh ba- bounces back to the upside. And that's what we've seen the last couple of days. So while we're losing it here, we're gaining it there. And then you know if you come in 0%, exposed and you get good economic data that the market sees uh, as positive and the market's gapping up you get that fomo that we better get engaged or clients want to see us doing something well we don't have to do that because that's the reason why we keep uh, the passive side of the portfolio mostly invested in the s p 500 as long 200 day moving average
0: but if we break the 200 that could be cut as well So that you could completely go uh, flat if it gets ugly enough. And on the active side, we can even throw on hedges and other things. So we're constantly adjusting our beta. So even if you have a a 30% SSO or 60% long S&P and nothing else on the other – well, no other individual stocks on the other side – it always doesn't necessarily mean that you have a 0.6 beta because you could actually hedge some of that with an inverse sector or index ETF to bring the beta down to 0.3 or whatever it is. And the reason I bring that up folks, the cash portion does not it's not the total total account minus the cash percentage equals your beta. So people think that if i've got a 100 and 30% in cash, I got a beta 0.7. No, if you've got a lot of very, very, very aggressive stocks, your beta could be three or one and a half, okay? Or it could be lower. So that's why those aren't the same. That's also why we use SSO so we can free up other money with treasuries, just like Don was talking about. Point being, we're constantly adding. And when when the, when the, when the, when the, uh, on the on the on the notes when he said is it time to re-engage it's not all in or all out it goes in increments and layers because you don't if you try to just go all in and all out you're going to get whipsawed too much it's too hard you got to measure the trend and you add a little bit if it continues you add more likewise on the other side when you get defensive so in any event we're constantly in g- evolved in the markets Listen, folks, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereassetmanagement.com up in the right-hand corner. There's a subscribe button. They can put their email and phone uh, name. We won't reach out to them in any way. It's up to them to reach out to us if they just want a complimentary portfolio review or just want a little bit of advice or even want a topic or a stock discussed on the show. Next to that is a contact button, and you can send an email. It goes directly to me, and you can ask a question if you got got one. And uh, uh, you can always email any of us, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, michael, ted, or connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Have a safe weekend, and we'll talk to you next week on Your Money.
1: It's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep.